ta mila falta rov galer hig ar bod grele new mar farch den alch kan digitakis newi o olskol nahern galia den hied agron by gentema coanus agus exulus exulach ablein agus tamwich ne hanjiris chachanu eringest ran fartiach naman igorsi sport you're very welcome to today's podcast where we'll be discussing the topic of women in sport now and next this podcast is part of the first issue of a new NUI Galway digital publication produced by our VP Development Office. And the theme of the first issue is equality, diversity and inclusion, a theme very relevant to the question of women in sport and the various ongoing issues and challenges that exist with regard to this topic. My name is Sean Crossan. I'm Senior Lecturer in Film in the Houston School of Film and Digital Media, um, leader of the Sport and Exercise uh, Group a research group within the Moore Institute and the co-director of the MA in Sports Journalism and Communications here at NUI Galway. My research over the past 15 years has focused in particular on the representation of sport uh, in film, media and popular culture and I've written previously including in my uh, 2013 book Sport and Film on the often problematic depictions uh, we find of women within for example the sports film genre even where women may on occasion, if very rarely, feature as, as lead, in lead roles in sports dramas. Both film and sport are in various ways responding to larger societal issues and developments and can be viewed to some extent, I believe, as barometers of changing values and priorities within society more broadly. The past year has been particularly revealing with regard to women in sport as we've lived through the ongoing pandemic and the challenges it has presented. Last August, Irish Times columnist Una Mullally, in an article discussing the ongoing direct provision controversy, um, direct, described the pandemic as, quote, less a leveller and more an exposing force of systemic failures within Irish society. And I'd argue that there are parallels with regard to women in sport where inequality became all the more apparent in this time of crisis. So to discuss our topic today, I'm delighted to be joined by two panellists, Clina Foley and Louise Toll. Clina Foley has been a sports journalist for over 30 years, 24 as a staff writer for independent news and media, and since 2015, working freelance as a sports writer and broadcaster. Uh, she has worked at multiple World and European Championships and Olympic Games, and is also the founder and presenter of the excellent Women's Sports podcast off the bench which has been running since 2015 and is twinned with off the ball clean is also regular radio contributor on sport on rt radio as well as on news talk and has been one of the most articulate contributors in the media to debates concerning women's sports in ireland and internationally we're also delighted to have her as a contributing lecturer on our ma in sports journalism and communication program Louise Toll is digital sports editor for Galway Pulse and has over 10 years experience in radio broadcasting. She's previously worked on RT Radio One Sport and was really inspired by last year's 20 by 20 campaign, which was concerned with creating a cultural shift in her perception of girls and women in sport and facilitating increased participation, um, particularly by young women in sport. Louise is currently studying on her MA in Sports Journalism and Communication programme here in NUI Galway one of the first women to participate in a dedicated programme of this type. So thank you both for joining uh, with me today, Gormagat Birch, 
and also to our production team, uh, social media manager Ian O'Reilly, editor Liam De Bruyne and producer Thomas O'Callaghan for their support in making this podcast possible. So to begin, The Telegraph just this week on Tuesday published damning re revelations be, uh, regarding the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on women's sports in the UK, resulting in the loss on average of 664 more days to women's sport than men's over the past year. If I could ask you both, and perhaps beginning with yourself, Lena, how do you think, or in what area particularly, do you think the pandemic has revealed the disparities in status and support between men's and women's sports in Ireland and internationally? Hi, Sean. Um, yeah, well, look, at, as we've seen, everything about the pandemic shows that it has exposed inequality, you know, socioeconomically, poor people in society are more, more, more affected by it. And if you like women's sport as the poorer sport, the sport that has less money and less financial imperative, it's understandable that it is going to be influenced more. So that I mean the Telegraph did research that just looked at team sport in England. So what it found was obviously that they lost more days of competition, but also that their competitions ended suddenly because the, 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 the decision was made, it's got to finish. We haven't got the money. We haven't got the crowds. We can't do it. Okay. Whereas, you know, a Premier League football continued and was there and came back quicker than everything. But in England, they found that women's football, rugby, netball, all their seasons were cancelled very quickly. And it is really, that is really at the heart of where the inequality is for women in sport. It's, it's only, I think it's, it's mostly in team sport. Um, it does it does occur elsewhere, but that is the problem. Is you know if there was if there was uh, if there was a financial imperative to get back to sport, even within um, lockdowns, then decisions were made to go back. But we know that that hasn't happened in a lot of sport, and particularly in amateur sport, and particularly in amateur team sport. And so yes, women have been more affected by it. It's something even as simple as. The Women's World Cup rugby was due to take place actually this year in uh, September and October in New Zealand, right? And it was cancelled and it was cancelled for two reasons. One, because they felt that there was, a, a, there was a worry that the teams wouldn't be physically prepared well enough for it. But also because there was a concern that because the players were mostly amateur, and that was the phrase that was used, then uh, the problem of quarantining, taking time off work, all of those things were going to be exacerbated for them. But I think it's really funny to see that the Women's World Cup, for which people have been preparing for so long and Ireland are still trying to qualify for it, it's been moved to next year. And yet, the Lions Tour is going to go ahead now, they've decided, in South Africa. And what is that about? That is about money. That is about it's going to make money. Um, there is money to support it. And all of those things that women don't have in sport. They're just one simple example of it. I really, another really interesting example, and I always say, say team sport is where the greatest inequality is for women. They get less support, they get less sponsorship, all those things that feed into one another to help you to grow sport. But actually, I was talking to Leona Maguire during the pandemic, and she was talking about, she was at home, stuck in Ireland training, um, and was talking about when she would go back to America and start her second year on the Women's Professional Tour. And I was saying, well, what will you do? And she said, well, look, at some of the women on the professional tour are thinking that they might hire Winnebago's and that they could use those to live in and travel from event to event, completely unlike the men's tour, which has so much money that they can just go and hire a house and stay wherever they want to do. And it's underlined by the fact that a couple of weeks ago, Leona Maguire was sixth in 
a really the top level of the LGPA, the, the best you can be. She was sixth in the tournament and she won for that sixth place. She won $47,000. And Jordan Spieth on the men's tour the very same weekend was sixth and he won $340,000. And that's the difference, you know. It's the inequality of support, the inequality for professional structures. All of that leaves women at, an, at, a, at a disadvantage. And it really has been shown, I think, big, um, internationally, especially uh, during this lockdown. Thank you for that. There's a lot of issues there that we, we might come back to several shortly. But if I could just open the same question to Louise, firstly, and your own response in terms of where you've seen those inequalities most apparent over the last year. Hi Sean, August uh, uh, for the invitation on the podcast here today. Um, I suppose this is with the 20 by 20 campaign, for example, um, it really inspired me to go out there and make a difference um, because I was seeing a lot of inequalities for women in sport and for a woman working in the media at the time, I felt like there wasn't been enough work done. And I suppose I wanted to improve myself and I took on the course uh, in sports journalism. And I suppose, you know, we only have to look even a few months back and see, you know, the inequalities that we, you know, um, in women in sport. I mean, if we take, for example, um, the last six nations for the Women's League, the last few matches were cancelled. And it was such a shame because there were, I, I honestly don't think um, there was any need to cancel them uh, with all the regulations in place. And like Kalina was saying there, I mean, we've the World Cup was supposed to take place in September in New Zealand for the women. And you can't help but think if this was the men's league, I mean, is it going to go ahead? And I'm sure it would because there's a lot of, finances being backed up behind them there's a lot of sponsorship there is you know um there's a lot of money involved and i think we need to kind of step back a little bit and think how can we bring women's sport to that level where men are at and i think it's it there's quite simple answers there i mean what i would suggest um is maybe perhaps play the women's team sports before the men's so if if you're going out to the Aviva um, to watch maybe the men's rugby, maybe play the women's match before that so that, you know, people get a chance to see like how really good they are and, you know, and still get to enjoy the men's as well straight after and make a real day out of it. So, I mean, that something so simple like that can really increase, you know, appetite for sponsorships. And, um, you know, really backing up the finances for the women's league. And, um, you know, I think that there seems to be a bit of an issue as well at the moment. I mean, I was reading there with Her Sport, which is an online publication promoting women in sport, you know, and one of the women on the Irish rugby team came out there recently bravely and said, you know, Anna Caprice, she was saying that, you know, there's some really ugly comments happening on social media right now with women in rugby. And I think we need to address it. And she came out and said, you know, we can't just set, sit back and let this happen. We need to, you know, shine a light on it. Thank you for that. Yeah. Kleena, you come in there. 
Sean, I would I would say to uh, to back up that with Louise, one of the things I noticed, and I'm sure a lot of people listening will have noticed as well, that even when there was no, even in the in the big lockdown in the past year, when there was so little live sport on, what I really noticed in the media as well, which is another area which is a big inequality of coverage, is that we had. Even though there wasn't live sport, there were pages and pages of nostalgia and stories about male athletes and male teams and very, very few about women's teams. In fact, at one point, I actually did two articles ranking the top 50 ladies Gaelic players and ladies Camogie players just to try to rebalance the thing. But my point was that... um, there wasn't an the, the the media didn't look as much as I expected towards women's sport. But even when I was trying to do some nostalgic pieces myself, one of the problems you have is that it hasn't been historically documented as the same way that men's has. So when you go looking up stuff and, and chasing up historical stories and facts and figures and um, particularly for broadcast, if you're looking for old, old images of women's uh, matches and all Ireland's even something that simple, they're not there. Because historically, they haven't been covered the same way as men. And I thought that was, I found that really frustrating during the last, uh, the first lockdown. I was looking, oh my God, every day the pages are full and full, and there was so little about women. And there are really interesting reasons for it because of tradition and because of history. And, and that is an area, when, you know, media coverage, which Louise is so interested in, that is an area where there's huge imbalance as well. Mm. I think you've raised a really interesting. Uh pointer but also a really interesting possibility for perhaps if, if the students listening or watching this podcast is a huge research project there which is uncovering and documenting the history of women's participation in sport in Ireland and internationally I know the UK has you know true centers dedicated centers in Leicester and elsewhere there has been dedicated projects which have really helped to to document the story of women's participation in in soccer for example but I think in the Irish experience there's still a lot of research and work and important work to be done there um, by you know researchers today and into the future could I ask you both because just going back to that Telegraph uh, article and connecting with something that happened also this week the controversy around the NCAA uh, basketball, women's basketball tournament in Texas, where there was a whole controversy about poor substandard facilities provided by for the female um, basketball players as opposed to the, the male basketball players and how very quickly it was it was uh, rectified, I understand, and the, 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 the facilities were in, in, in improved. But I wonder to what extent uh, or, or whether, and it's something that's raised in the Telegraph article by... Uh, Baroness uh, Tani Gray um, Thompson, where she raises uh, or, or proposes that there's a need for an equivalent to Title IX, um, which is that um, very important legislation that was brought in in 1972 in the US that requires educational institutions to provide equal support, equal facilities, um, and uh, outlaws discrimination against students on the basis of, of sex in particular. So whether something like that, as Tani Grick Thompson suggests, is needed in, in, in Ireland, in Britain, in Europe to address what you very rightly identified, the financial imperative, which is there, which will always, well, going forward for the, the certainly in the near to medium term, it will always work against women because men's sport, there's so much capital tied up within within men's sports. It's the old argument always about, oh, men's sport attracts bigger crowds and makes more money. 
Um, and, and then you say, but how do you grow women's sport if we haven't got the bigger crowds and we haven't got the money to, to promote the game more and to develop the athletes more? It's that whole chicken and egg thing. Like, I think there's a really, you know, could we have a Title IX in Ireland? I mean, we're, we, we have equality legislation. I think there's one great example of it, I would say. Um, what came out, something really interesting that came out this year was um, through the WGPA, the Women's Gaelic Players Movement, and they've now amalgamated with the men's. But they've done research. So they've discovered that 93% of inter-county female players don't get, they get no travelling expenses, right? Worse than that, 77, 70% of, 77% of them pay for their own physio and 70%, 69% pay their own gym fees. Now, you won't find that in, in inter-county or very few, maybe some of the smaller counties, but most inter-county male players just would can't believe that that is the case. Um, and now, during the lockdown, ironically, um, the men's men do get traveling expenses, but they've they've been lessened during the thing. So they're actually going to be influenced worse in some ways by lockdown. I think when they go back, than than the women will. But the interesting point here is, okay, that's a financial thing, and you can say they don't raise enough money, but they do get government grants, right? And the women have only recently got government grants, and the men have been getting government grants for quite a while and they get three million and they go directly to each player. So they get a couple of hundred quid depending on how far they last at the championship. The women only in the last couple of years have managed to get a government grant and it's seven hundred thousand for all of them. And actually it doesn't go to the players at all. It goes to their teams to fund things like physio, nutrition, team stuff that's happening. It doesn't doesn't actually go to the players at all. So there's a huge discrepancy there and you do have to ask and say under equality law and under European Union law and everything else that we have, surely that government end for a start, let's start with that and see, should that be level? Because we know they're training, all the statistics are there, they're training just as hard now um, as the men and putting the same effort in. And I think that's a really good example of where you would like something like Title IX to say um, inter-county GA players should all be equally supported financially by the government. Absolutely. And, and Louise, did you have any thoughts on that or, or how the Irish government or whether the Irish government should be you know, following the money much more carefully and uh, in terms of how its, its support is invested and, and ensuring that it's invested to support uh, equally women's sports? Yeah, I suppose um, I was actually chatting to the Minister of Sports uh PR person actually to see if he could come on the podcast today but unfortunately he was uh, unavailable but um, from you know hearing him in webinars they seem to be very um, open in the sense of supporting women in sport um, and I was actually watching a recent webinar with him I was actually um, I felt very hopeful in the fact that the government are actually going to bring in a new um rule really with the governing bodies for each sport in the sense that they're going to make um the boards of each sport um gender balance so they're going to make sure that there is both men and women at the very top tables and if they're not or if they refuse to the government aren't going to be supporting these support supporting these uh bodies with finances so I thought that was very hopeful uh, to hear when the Minister of Sport, uh, Jack Chambers, came out with that in a recent webinar. Sean, I would, uh, uh, if I could come back as well on the other one too that we were pointing out, 
you know, the NCAA, you know, the basketball one, the big scandal that broke in America. First of all, uh, what was really interesting was that it broke. So so the women's weight room was a piddly little set of weights and the men's was a gigantic, you know, full, serious, pull, you know, weights gym for the two different tournaments. And this is the highlight of the what's called March Madness. It's the highlight of American Collegiate Year. And in fact, the women's finals have been even better than the men's finals in recent years. They've been sensational. There have been some incredible games. But they didn't just find that out. They also found out that the men are getting the proper, uh, the full on um, uh, vaccines and the women are only getting um, what you call it, the testing, you know, for antigen testing. So they're actually, actually their medical treatment of the athletes is completely different. And also that the the hashtag March Madness, the, the Twitter account set up for March Madness only covers the men's. And that is like a blue chip Twitter account, you know, that would a lot of American sports fans be following. It doesn't actually cover the women's, you know, and it's in little details like this that we expose it. But I am hopeful because, like Louise was talking about earlier, I think social media, Me Too movement that has affected, you know, discussions on equality in every aspect of life. I think that it's exposing things like this now. And it was really interesting that in that case in America, private private companies who made equipment said, we'll give you gear. And they came in straight away. And then and then the NCA started having to deal with the problem. And it's really interesting that sponsors came in there because I think that sponsors now are seeing that it isn't just about an economic reason that you would have for supporting some women's uh, team sports, but actually that there is a philanthropic reason and there is a development reason and there's a societal reason maybe to be covering, uh, to be supporting women in sport. And particularly, as I said, in team sports where the greatest inequality is. Yeah, absolutely. And it speaks to, again, the, the critical role that, that the media plays, whether we talk about social media. I mean, it's a, I know it's a double edged sword and you've touched on it, Louise. I mean, the appalling stuff that circulates on social media. But on the other hand, social media can be a hugely important platform for promoting uh, the women's sports and for promoting uh, the various issues of concern within women's sports. Yeah, I suppose if I can step in there and mention really the NBA player, um, Sajona Prince, uh, she uploaded a TikTok video and that TikTok video um, showing really the facilities that were available for women, like you were saying, Clean of the weights, um, that video went on to be viewed by six million people and you know, she was showing really like the little weights that the women were getting. And then she was showing the state of the art gym and equipment that the men were getting. So, I mean, you know, there was definitely equality there. Now, since looking it up this morning, there's videos going up and all the organizations are pulling together to try and fix this. Um, but yeah, there is definitely a lot of improvement to do. You brought in those fascinating points about how the the uh, kind of social media response had encouraged sponsors to step in and to ensure that the women had the proper proper weights and the proper support at that event and the importance of the media social media uh, in ensuring that women get the support they need like that 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 discourse is really critical to the advancement of women's sport yeah, and that discourse is really empowering as well. You know, um, Louise mentioned Anna Capeless coming out, the, the Irish rugby player. She's a fabulous, fabulous uh, woman, and she's incredibly interesting person. She speaks Japanese. The things you, this girl has to know about her are just unbelievable. But she, um, 
she she was very good what happened was when when the when the word came that the that the women's six nations was been rearranged and would start she got the usual comments of who cares it's only women's rugby and so she did a really powerful piece on social media on this is why we care this is why it's important to us it's okay if you don't like it but don't diss us, you know, this is why we do what we do and this is what it means to us. And it was resonated with loads of rugby players, not just women rugby players, but all kinds of rugby players. And um, and that conversation, that discourse now, that didn't exist before. You know, I'm covering sport for 30 years and giving out about the lack of coverage for women and trying to change it and seeing what could be done. But now athletes have a voice themselves and they're very articulate and very empowered. And just this generation, I think we're in, what are we, the third or fourth generation of feminism um it's brilliant to see how empower how empowered they are now to speak their voice and also to give voice to the things you know and the inequalities that they speak so i i i'm very hopeful um that things will change but they don't change unless we still need to get enough people following it and attract bigger sponsorship and therefore attract more tv coverage that still has to happen to grow it absolutely and i mean this is something you know to understand some of those attitudes and and the kind of challenges i guess that that women and, and female athletes face uh sometimes we need to reflect on society generally and the kind of that there are kind of biases and prejudices there that have worked against uh women's sport in the past and i know louise from speaking to you before this podcast you and this is in response to the extraordinary uh, success of rachel blackmore uh, recently at cheltenham winning the uh, trophy for top jockey um first time a woman won that trophy at Cheltenham but um you were talking about the the type of prejudice that she encountered when she first decided that she wanted to be uh, a jockey yeah um I suppose like from speaking to people like on the ground really um there seems to be you know there was a lot of people who went to Rachel and said you know don't do it you know it's and really kind of tried to discourage her as much as they could. Um, but fair play to her, she stuck at it and she kept going. And I'm delighted to say, you know, that I was alive and here to witness a moment like that. Um, I suppose it's such a shame in the sense that we could go see her um, on the grounds and, you know, pick up the Ruby Walsh trophy, which I think was a very symbolic moment uh, for women in sport. And... Um, you know, what I love about racing is that, you know, there really isn't um, as much of a gender issue, you know, um, when you're on that racing course, you know, you have your you have the men and the women competing side by side against each other. And, you know, they're commemorating each other at the end or they're celebrating each other's success. And I, that's what I really like about racing here in Ireland. Um, and I suppose like what I'd like to see improve, and this is from speaking to another uh, person as well on the grounds, is perhaps maybe working on the facilities for the female jockeys. So, you know, making sure that they're there and, you know, um, because there's there's more women now stepping up to the jockey role. And um, I think it's it's fantastic. And, you know. What's really nice as well is, you know, even in reports, you're not seeing, you know, really uh, female jockey as much. You're seeing jockey Rachel Blackmore, you know, there's no such thing as, you know, there's no men jockey, men's jockey, you know, there's no women's jockey. It's just jockey. 
and uh, you know and the name after so that's really really nice to see and I hope that will continue for all sports um you know and uh, yeah I think it was an incredible achievement for what she did and well deserved you know there's there was people who went to her trainer and asked why did you give Rachel a chance you know she you know, because she was a woman and you know he basically told them that the reason why I gave her a chance was because she was up at the crack of dawn she was running that track on her own in the dark in the rain in the hail you know she was extremely dedicated to get on that horse to Cheltenham and uh you know it just I think a lot of people don't understand like the work that's involved to even get to Cheltenham and you know Rachel she she was hard working and she was dedicated and you know she was given that opportunity and I'm glad he did because you know, it just shows you it paid off. There's that old feminist line always of, you know, that, that women have to work twice as hard to be seen as half as good. And uh, Rachel Ackmore works incredibly, incredibly hard. Anybody you talk to in racing knows how hard she works. For me, you see, if you, the great thing about her success is obviously it's deserved, but also it shows other women that they can do it because in horse racing traditionally, for example, Nina Carberry and Katie Walsh, two equally brilliant riders who were really, really successful but stayed amateur. But they came from racing families. They came through the racing dynasties and a lot of a lot of jockeys, male or female, happen to do that. What's really unusual as well about Rachel is that she doesn't come from a racing family and doesn't have any of those connections. She's really done it all on her own. So... For me, that's brilliant because, and if you go to racing yards, you know, they're full. I mean, Louise will know this. She rides horses. They're full of women. They're full of women who are who are mucking out and riding out these thoroughbreds every morning. But a lot of them don't have the ambition to be jockeys because they think they're not good enough. But seeing somebody like Rachel Blackmore do it, I think now could really change the game. And I would be really hoping that we will see all of those brilliant workers, female workers in stables. And by the way, Gordon Elliott, who has come in for a lot of flack recently, but uh, his yard is full of women. And I, I did a story on him a couple of years ago before Cheltenham because his racing secretary, his traveling head lad and his head lad were all women. And that's extremely unusual. Has a very young yard and a very um a very a gender balanced yard and it's brilliant to see so like I think that's what's that's what's so great about her story not only is she brilliant and now now clearly a superstar and the best jockey in Cheltenham but also she will I think give confidence to other young women working in 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 the business who may not have those connections and may have thought oh I'll always be a, a riding out in the mornings to go further. Thank you, Tina. And I think we've, we've actually run out of time. And I think that's a very, very hopeful and positive note to finish on, that when women are given the opportunity, when they're given the support, that they are equally, if not more capable than men within whatever sport you want to mention. So I think it's 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 a message of hope we're sending out, but also of the necessity to support women, to provide them with the right facilities, to provide them with the appropriate funding, to provide them with the 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 coverage through the media that women's sports deserved and they can help to build that recognition factor for women's sports nationally and internationally. So thank you both sincerely for sharing your perspectives today. Um, I want to also thank again our production team, uh, Ian O'Reilly, Liam De Bruyne and Tomas, uh, Thomas O'Callaghan. And to you, the listener or the viewer, if you're watching us online, for joining us today. 
Gormila Mahaki, Asavetlin in you, Tasulam, Gorvinship, Sultagasasavasar Bod Grela, Agus Bajer Awar, Machnev Jib, Amakansha, Slan Lib, Agus Toraridichin, Agus Dachela.